You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed, and I'm Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with David Burkus, who teaches business, also the author of many books, works with lots of different companies. His most recent book is this one called Leading from Anywhere, The Essential Guide to Managing Remote Teams. Very timely, of course, but you also have some other books. And and I think when I look at these other books, this current book, it kind of just builds on those other books. It's not a departure from these other books, which include uh, friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. Do I have to read the whole title? No, <laughs> we just stop at the first friend of a friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> friend of a friend, understanding the hidden networks that can transform your life and your career. And then he's got, I got this one right here under new management, how leading organizations are upending business as usual. You also have uh, pick a fight, how great teams find a purpose worth rallying around and myths of creativity, the truth about how innovative companies and people generate new ideas. Welcome, Dave. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm impressed you caught Pick a Fight, by the way, because that was our really cool project we did with Audible that released right before the world ended and everybody stopped listening to audiobooks because they didn't have a commute anymore. <laughs> really? Well, I hope they'll listen to podcasts. because <laughs> <laughs> It seems to have bounced back, but it was a rough time to be launching anything in audio-only format. Uh-huh. It was really weird. Yeah. Well, well, speaking of commutes, I think you quote Peter Drucker and he said back in like 1993, okay, that's a long time ago for, I think for you, you, you know, you were probably high school or something, but I remember. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I had no idea who Peter Drucker was when he would have said that in 1993. Right. But I, I was kind of finishing up in, in around business school classes at the time. And he said that commuting is over. It's done. It's no longer a necessity and, and we should just get rid of it. And I think 25 years later, you point out that only 3% of American workers worked from home. So normally Peter Drucker's not wrong about a lot, but he was certainly wrong about this, right? So why is it that companies were so resistant prior to the pandemic to kind of remote work or, or distributed work? I mean, the, the notion's been around. You, you mentioned in 1973, there was this guy named Jack Nils or Niles. I didn't know about this guy. And he wrote a book called Telework. And this is before the internet. I mean, this was back when it cost a dollar a minute to talk on the phone. I mean, he was saying that we should be doing doing telework. You even highlight that the British Empire was run remotely, you know, and you had two-year-long back and forth letter communication times, and they were still able to rule the earth without seeing the sun set with these distributed teams. So why is it that Marissa Meyer is calling everybody back to the office in whenever that was, 2013? And and why is it that companies were so resistant to this idea of distributed work prior to the pandemic? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, arguably even 14 months in, some of them are still uh, fairly, fairly opposed to this idea of distributed work. I mean, I'm not sure if you saw the Goldman Sachs announcements and all that sort of stuff, but it makes me roll my eyes. You know, I think there is an assumption. And I think you said this book is kind of a follow up to other ones. And under new management, we really rallied against all of the ideas for management that were invented to run a factory that just don't work in a knowledge work economy, right? And so this is what Drucker was talking about in 1993 too, right? Get out of these outdated models and actually start going, what what is the nature of work we're asking people to do? And then we can build that management function. And so one of the big ones of that is there was always this assumption that presence equals productivity. And 
I mean, that makes sense when you're running an assembly line, right? If not enough people show up for work, then you can't run the assembly line and no one is productive. So I, so I understand it, right? But I think what happened, and I wish there was like really robust data on this, but this is more of my like anecdotal data from talking to a lot of people, is that it is really hard to measure performance in knowledge work, especially day to day, right? It's really hard to know all of those people sitting at their desks on the computer, are they being productive or not? And in the absence of that, a lot of managers, the lazier ones, if we're being honest, will just flip and say, okay, well, uh, when did they come in? When did they leave? This person's got to be productive because they're always staying late to get extra work done or they're always there right before me. Now, they may not know that they were there five minutes before you and just make it look like they've been there for an hour, right? That's as far back as what was that Broadway musical, how to succeed in business without really trying. And that was one of the pieces of advice, right? So this is an old school mentality. I think in the case of Marissa Meyer, you bring up Marissa Meyer and, and a couple other people, I do think there is something to be said for creative problem solving, innovation, design thinking, et cetera, in person versus virtual, right? This is the one area where I'm just kind of like the technology is not here yet and I'm not sure it ever will be. So I do understand it from that perspective. But once you come up with said idea and it's time to kind of grind out the work, create the prototype or, or what have you, well, that works best on uninterrupted. And at least now, and I think for the foreseeable future, uninterrupted means freedom to leave the office and go find a place to hide. I talked about it under new management uh, in 2015, 2016 was when that came out and it was rallying against the open offices. By 2018, everybody agreed with me that these things were terrible, right? But I remember even when I was doing media tours for that book, I would have people go, yeah, that's why I got a library card to the New York library across the street. And that's where I go hide. Or there's a coffee shop two blocks down. And when I really, if you ask anybody, even in, you know, 10 years ago, where do you go when you really need to get work done? They very rarely said the office, but they knew they had to do the FaceTime thing in order to look productive. And that's the tension that everybody was struggling with until the great work from home experiment began. And hopefully now we've realized that presence doesn't equal productivity. There's better work to be done to measure and track that. But I really feel like there's a lot of people that even 14 months into this really just feel like it's still the truth and can't wait to get back. And I feel sorry for those people because a lot of their most talented people do not agree with them. The question I'm asked most often over the last year is when are we going back to the office? And the answer I always give them is we're not, at least not all of us and not all of the time. And so you better get ready to lead in that context. Yeah, so I, I like how you mentioned a couple different reasons which are non-overlapping for why people bosses wanted people in, in the office. And the first one is this idea of, of knowledge work and how it is analogized to kind of physical labor, like factory work. And there the idea is that the, the workers need to be monitored in order to extract um, productivity. I had a um, professor in graduate school who was an expert in slavery among other things and he said slavery the kind of slavery plantation slavery that we had in the western hemisphere it only works for the kind of labor where productivity is easy to observe right so you know things like sugarcane and, and cotton and so forth but the minute you move to something like olive growing which requires a lot of careful work it's very difficult to observe whether people are doing a good job and so plantation slavery doesn't doesn't really work if you have a factory the idea was i think that well you need the people in the physical space because they got to work on the assembly line they got to work together with people but 
you also need to be able to kind of have these supervisors who are kind of walking up and down the aisles, making sure that people are, are doing their work. And so if we bring people into the office, they're going to presumably, they've got nothing better to do than to work. And I don't think that's the main reason today. I think today, more sophisticated managers are, are thinking more about, you know, this collaboration and, and creativity. And so the magic and, and the spark and culture building and collegiality and passion and purpose, I think that's, that's probably the more common reason among more sophisticated managers. But the, the old reason is still there, certainly in the, in the background of a lot of, a lot of managers, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I think you'd be surprised how, how many managers have struggled for that because they're not in that sophisticated mindset, right? But I mean, a, a lot of folks that were already leading from a place of trust and autonomy, et cetera, they have struggled far less over the last 14 months than I would even say your average manager, your average team leader. Hopefully, many of them have changed their mind over the last year, right? Probably they had bigger growing pains, but they've gotten to that point. But I every day I get emails from, I mean, it's, it's funny. One of the most common emails I get right now is we surveyed our employees and only 25% of them want to come back. Can you help? And I always write back with pretty much the same thing, which is like, depends on what you mean by help, because I can't convince them to come back, right? But I, we can talk about what it's going to look like when they're back, but only for two or three days a week, right? Or, or something like that. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I, the more sophisticated leaders, this has been a much easier transition, I think. And their concerns about lack of being around each other have been that, a bonding, camaraderie, collaboration, et cetera. But I do, there's a lot of people that, I mean, this is why we saw upticks in purchasing spy software and all sorts of crazy stuff back in April, May, and June, Des despite pretty much everybody I know whose job it is to help managers saying the same thing, which is like, if you need to install spy software, you screwed up a long time ago. Yeah. Right? So. Well, it's funny how some of the earlier studies around work from home and productivity actually focused on the more kind of, I don't know, we might think of as, as menial jobs, like call centers, for instance. So there's some famous studies around call centers where they let people work from home. And, you know, call, call center work is kind of like factory work of the mind in a way. But precisely because it was relatively easy to observe the output, you could actually see what the impact was. And the initial studies showed that productivity was increased when people worked from home. Is that correct? It's exactly right. And there's a couple different reasons for that. Probably the biggest two are that people worked longer hours, but not, I wouldn't say an atrocious amount of longer hours. What happened on average is that people would start their work day when before they would have started their commute, right? So if it takes 30 minutes to get somewhere. They would just start 30 minutes earlier. If it takes 15 minutes to get home, right? They would work until the time they would have arrived, right? So there was that issue. But the other big thing was just the lack of distractions, right? I'm not at the office, therefore I don't get dragged into as many meetings or interrupted as much, et cetera. Now, ironically, that second one is not what we've seen over the last year, right? What we've seen is the number of meetings and virtual, the check-ins and all that dramatically increase. And so now people are working longer hours and staying about the same productivity-wise, which I guess is a per hour drop in productivity, right? And a lot of that is just, again, I think is a lot of the, the thrashing of the bad manager, for example, saying, well, I can't see you, but if I call a meeting with you every morning and we right. check in, then I know you're working. Is, is part of that kind of the manager's need for, I don't know, a sense of power, right? And when you have a meeting and you have all these subordinates that are essentially paying attention to you, <laughs> it reminds you of your status. Is there a part of that? I mean, what accounts for the the frequency of meetings? I mean, you have a whole chapter on meeting science and I plan on getting it later, but might as well jump in it right now because this is not something we teach in business schools. 
right? We talk all about discounted cash flows and all that kind of stuff. But I think a course on like meeting science would probably be more useful to a lot of business students than a lot of the classes they're currently taking. I mean, I, I agree. I'm, a, I'm an organizational psychologist by training and we get one class, right? We get org behavior or management in a global era or some other you know, name for it. And we get three credit hours out of 30 something credit hours to teach them all of the people skills, right? And the thing I joke about is like, pay attention to this class. You probably won't remember it, but when your spreadsheets aren't telling you what the problem is, call the people who did really well in this class, right? Because they probably know what the answer is. So the power dynamic is an, is an interesting question. There are certainly sociopaths, and we find that those people do actually attain higher levels of power much more often, right? My, my friend Tomas Chamar Music has this great book called Why Do Incompetent Men Become Leaders, right? And the reason isn't there is a male bias to it, but it's that we have this assumption that charisma equals competence, right? That a sense of confidence equals competence. We end up promoting those people. And of course, yeah, those people do. So they exist. The truth is, in the last year, I think a lot of the reason is just we don't know what the heck we're doing, right? And you know this because you work in a university. We're famous for this, right? When we don't know what to do, we start a committee. And it's the committee's job to define the problem. And then maybe a different committee's job to solve the problem, et cetera. Like when we don't know exactly what to do, we circle the wagons. And to be honest with you, for the first number of months into this pandemic, we didn't know exactly what to do. We didn't know how to coordinate work. We didn't know how to keep each other updated outside of synchronous conversations because that's what we've always used. So I think to some extent that really increased it. Then I think the downstream effect of that is that there's a whole world and, and Steven Rogelberg would be a great person to talk to on this because he studies meetings, right? So there's a whole world of sort of the science of, of meetings but what we find is that in a virtual context, e even how we treat in-person meetings is different, right? So you think about a, a team, their average, let's say they do a weekly all-hands meeting, it's 90 minutes long, there's six or seven different items on the agenda. You can't do that in a virtual setting. ESPN is really tempting, right? People will not be on that Zoom call. So we need to, to dramatically shrink it down, one or two agenda items per meeting, change the attendee list, right? Because the other thing that would happen in that all-hands meeting is the whole team's there, but on any given agenda item, there's only three or four people that are relevant to that item. The rest of the people are just there, right? So I think it really takes that level of savvy as well to kind of break it down. And then the other thing is there are sometimes reasons for in-person things like training that would require you to virtually be present for a presentation. But for a team meeting, presenting information in a meeting context is almost always unnecessary, right? You can create a pre-read or you could even, that, that slide deck that you want to spend the first 20 minutes of the weekly meeting presenting to your team, just record yourself narrating through it and send it out a couple days ahead of time, right? There's ways to save that time and reduce the, the meetings. A lot of us just don't know about it. We're using a very old and in-person model of meetings that, that, to be honest with you, didn't work back then either, right? Before the pandemic, we were ranting about meetings. Now we're ranting about virtual meetings. Not much of a difference. Yeah. When the entire chapter that you have in the book on meetings, this could have been just cross out online and just leave it at meetings, right? So all the tips, I mean, because that meeting science literature was all generated before online, right? And so it's it just, online's just kind of brought it to the fore. I mean, there are definitely differences, but it seems like some of the key principles you outline, right? Like make sure you know why you're meeting, right? <laughs> like have a very specific purpose for your meeting. And, and then make sure that only the people that absolutely have to be at the meeting are at the meeting. And if you have an agenda, you know, kind of stick with the agenda because meetings become like a CYA, right? Kind of like, 
emails that have a gazillion CCs, those kind of emails I tend to start ignoring after a while because there might be some really important stuff buried in a bunch of junk and I'm going to miss it because I've learned that, that it's a waste of my time. So you've just uncovered the dirty little secret of the book, right? Which is that 95% of it is good advice for team leaders in any context, right? The strategy doesn't change. The tactics change when you move to virtual, right? And so the fundamentals of how to plan a, a great meeting are roughly the same. I think what changes is that Zoom fatigue is a very real thing. There's actually been research, even during pandemic conducted research, on what that does. The funniest explanation I've seen is that it's a trick in our brains. It's a problem of like when you see the Brady Bunch creative yeah. faces... That's the same as sort of like being on stage and people have that fear of public figure. There are all of these eyes staring at me. Maybe I'm prey, right? Or something like that. So there's a very old thing that happens. The other is that in a one-on-one -on -one context, right? Like if you're looking at me and I'm taking up your whole screen, I look really close to you, right? It's really kind of awkward because you wouldn't stand that close to someone in real life and talk to them. So that can kind of drain us as well. So those little things change some of the tactics. And that's why like in the book, we talk about breaking it up and breaking it out, meaning change what people are looking at from slideshow to group setting to one presenter, and even break it out, meaning use a lot of different breakouts, right? Use there are times when you want to discuss where if you have a team of 12, it would be better to put four people in three different rooms, have them talk about it for a bit and then report out when you bring everybody back together. That can happen in an in-person meeting because people have side conversations. It can't happen in a virtual context because there's just there's not bandwidth for it. Well, the idea of having very purposeful meetings is fantastic, but there's this whole other idea of having kind of spontaneous interactions or serendipitous encounters. And there's been a lot of studies, if we go back to the call centers, where if the call center employees in a physical environment have synchronized breaks then they become more productive, presumably because during those synchronized breaks, they want to kind of chit-chatting about best practices. And not only that, they also probably create some bonds and some collegiality and stuff like that. Is the remote workplace optimized for the more autistic people? There's some evidence that people who are backhandlers and, and charismatic people and people who are uh, better people people, those people are kind of disadvantaged in this new world. And the people who are a little bit more solitary and focused on their own in, inside their own heads are advantaged. Is there evidence to support that? Or is do people miss out on not only the, the in interpersonal interactions, but also kind of the serendipitous encounters? Yeah. I mean, in terms of evidence, is there solid evidence? I haven't seen it yet. It may exist. If it does, it was published in the last like two months, right? It wouldn't surprise me. But I, I also think, you know, we made jokes when the pandemic began about like introverts saying, I've been waiting my whole life for this <laughs> yeah. moment, right? Like, but the truth is even they felt the slog, right? Because introverts don't hate people and extroverts don't love people. We all love people. Well, okay, 2% of the population are psychopaths. But beyond that, we all love people. The difference is how many and how often and those sort of frequencies. So do they do they do better in that context with less interaction? I mean, yes, but all of us need that human interaction, that serendipitous interaction, etc. Right. So that's a whole lot harder in a remote context, because like you said, you could synchronize breaks. In fact, I, I wrote this book with a sort of twist on that being an extrovert where I had two friends of mine that were also writing books. And we met every weekday at 11 a.m. on a Zoom call. And we just said hi to each other and then started working. And then whenever we needed a break, we were there for each other to, to chat. We did the whole Pomodoro thing, right? 25 minutes on, then we take a five minute chat break, et cetera, because we were extroverts in the middle of a pandemic craving that interaction of those synchronous breaks. I wouldn't trade that for in-person interactions at all, but it, it's an okay substitute. And I don't know, pre-pandemic, 
I don't know of a distributed company, like a globally distributed company that didn't take the time and the money to bring everyone together a couple times a year. Usually it was like once a year for the whole company and then a team leader would have budget to bring his or her team together uh, six months after that. So at least twice a year you were seeing your team of people in person. And I think that's where most of us will be headed when we get back to the office. That pull is so strong that I think we'll have two or three days of, of synchronicity or five days, but not eight hours. It's going to vary by a lot of different companies because we do need that. What we've been doing now is treading water until we can get back in that regard. But at the same time, even the extroverts, I mean, I'm hugely extroverted. My wife jokes about it all the time, but I still need like, I just want to sit and stare at my phone time, right? And so we'll need a place to hide too. And I think for most of us, that will be a home office, a co-working space that's different from the actual home office or something like that. Well, a lot of the things that you're talking about at home versus in office, they're kind of repeating the discussions of like private work office versus open office, right? And so since most people work in open offices now, we kind of equate working in the office with working in an open office. And, you know, working at home is like kind of having a corner office with a door, except it's geographically separated from all the other closed offices with doors. It's the best kind of corner office, right? It's the corner office on the floor where nobody else has an office. And so the, the advocates of the open office, they talk about, oh, well, serendipitous encounters and reach across the hallway and talk to people. But, you know, it comes at a, at a cost, which is the cost of distraction. The working from home in the past year has been very different from working from home before and presumably after because the distractions at home are, are maybe even more severe than the distractions would have been at the office if you have kids running around and, and, and so forth. So what are some of the tools and techniques that you use to kind of create an environment at home which allows you to, to do this kind of deep work? I think really getting a solid handle on what your new schedule is matters a tremendous amount. I think most of the people that have attempted to keep, and most of the companies that have attempted to keep people to the nine to five Monday through Friday have just created more stress for them, right? Because if your school is saying that your kids' Zoom lessons are from 10 a.m. to noon, you can't work from eight to five, right? I mean, I, I'm lucky enough to be in a, in a part of the world where we open schools back uh, pretty quickly, but there were several weeks where I was vice principal of what we called Burke Academy, right? And uh, it happened every day between 10 and noon. And so I, nothing could get done then. So you have to set that schedule and it's going to be different and also communicate that schedule out. What I like to think of it is not saying these are my work hours and these are my non-work hours, but deciding these are my responsive hours or my interruptible hours and these are my untouchable hours or my non-responsive hours. So that's building boundaries for you, not only for your team that you're working on, but also for your family. Saying no to folks that are living with you in the same space is not it's not mean. It's saying, I need to focus on this so that when I'm with you, I can focus on you, right? I mean, I'll tell you, I, I ran off to close the door because I heard my kids come back from the pool. But I'll tell you what we developed. I'll just give you this hack. Hang on one second. For those of you lucky enough to be watching on the YouTube channel, you can see my greatest productivity solution of the last 14 months is a $2.07 red do not disturb sign. And what it was is we had a conversation kind of as a family about what all of this needed to be, especially when I needed to write the book, uh, which we did the entire thing in eight weeks. So what we came up with was door open, come on in, I'm interruptible from everybody else. Door close, knock, it's okay to interrupt me, but tell me what you need, et cetera. And if you don't need anything urgent, red sign on the door, turn around and go back upstairs. Like it doesn't matter what you want. I don't, I can't do it, right? Unless your brother is bleeding, right? Or the house is on fire, turn around and go back upstairs. 
And I've, I've seen other variations since the book came out. People have written in and told me about like one, one woman, I think this is great, stole her daughter's tiara and then rigged up Christmas lights. And then she has a little like office nook that she's been working out of. So there is no door to close. So what she did was basically if the tiara was on and it was plugged in because it would be light up, right? That was the sign to the rest of the family. Like, don't touch mom. Don't interrupt mom. All of those things are boundary oriented, right? And we we know this, right? There's that old adage about, you know, if you don't keep your calendar, someone else is going to keep it for you or you'll be the mercy of someone who, who does. The difference here is that the stakeholders are not just coworkers now. They're the people we live with as well. And that doesn't mean, like I said at the top, that doesn't mean we're being mean. It actually means we're being focused on them in the times we're not working because they're giving us that time to focus in the other times, right? The hardest part of my three symbol system, open, closed, and little red do not disturb sign, the hardest part for me was making sure that if they, if I had the door open and they walked in, stop what I was doing, turn around and give them time. They only ever wanted like three or four minutes. I had to do that. Otherwise, the other two symbols are meaningless too. Well, I think those same visual cues can be brought into the open office, right? So, you know, there's people who wear headphones, there's others that have like little red lights and so forth that say, leave me alone, but not just physically, virtually, I think you need to also draw similar boundaries. And so you, you talk a lot about email and how email can distract you and, and how you need to manage the synchronous and asynchronous communication. I thought this was very powerful, regardless of where you work. I mean, even if you work in the office, you're probably going to be communicating with the person four desks down through email most of the time anyway, right? So how can a company create an internal rule book for communications, whether it's synchronous versus asynchronous versus, you know, phone versus email versus immediate response email. And then of course we've got Slack. We've got, I mean, I've gone through this cycle where I used to respond to email all the time. Now I kind of don't respond to email, but if you send me a Slack, then I'll respond to that. Then kind of after a while, it's like, all right, Slack can wait. And then, and then it's text. And so people figure, once they figure out your WhatsApp, then and pretty soon WhatsApp is yeah. going to have to be pushed off. So, you know, we've got this. Wait for the neural link, right? Yeah. Wait, wait for the implants, right? And then, no. Um, so what, when I'm working with most organizations on this, the, the thing I encourage them to do first is start with, I mean, you said, how do you create a rule book? You create a rule book, start with a working agreement, social contract, when I'm feeling particularly feisty, I sometimes refer to it as the declaration of interdependence for your team. We have to work together, so we're going to have to find a way to work together, right? And breaking down what is asynchronous versus synchronous communication is a part of that, but it's broader, right? It's all of those little unanswered questions where a lot of friction and where a lot of conflict on a team happens is when somebody assumes a norm that isn't actually what other people assume, right? It's when somebody sends an email and no one responds in the first 12 hours and then they get angry when everybody else is going, well, I have a day, like you sent me via email, therefore I have 24 to 48 hours to respond, right? Those are things we actually need to flush out. So what I encourage a lot of team leaders to do is make that list of questions about stuff we haven't resolved. And that is not only not only what are the rules in terms of time, what mediums of communication are synchronous, asynchronous, and what an appropriate amount of response time is, but also what content areas are need to be synchronous. In other words, what's what are the reasons why we would call an emergency meeting? What are the reasons why we would call someone on the phone or text them immediately and expect immediate response, right? What are those subject areas? And what are the, the subject areas that can wait, that deserve to be an email because they're not actually that important, right? So we have to have that conversation on two different levels, not only the medium of communication, but what is being communicated, all of that affects how we do it. It's also other things too, like how are we going to give each other feedback? Is there a way that we prefer to give each other status updates? All of that kind of goes in. 
I usually do this as a meeting where we go through each question and arrive at a consensus. And then that can either become like a frequently asked questions document for the team. It's a shared document somewhere on the company intranet or a Google doc or something like that. Makes a great onboarding document, by the way, too. Like, welcome to the team. Here's how we all work together. But other times I'll actually have them take that list of questions and reframe it as agreement statements. We agree that 24 hours is a reasonable amount of time to wait for an email. We agree that we're going to keep each other updated uh, on projects in Slack every Monday morning. We agree that we agree that we agree that. And that gives you that sort of sense of rules of the road, because a lot of what happens, like I said, conflict is miscommunication. But a lot of the pressure that we've all felt over the last 14 months, 15 months has been self-inflicted pressure from not having those things. We get the email at 8.30 at night and we feel like we have to respond that night instead of waiting till the next morning. But if the team has agreed that emails have 12 hours or 24 hours, then we no longer feel that pressure, right? So all of that self-inflicted need to be always on dissipates as well. So that that's where I start. How do you draw up the rule book? You draw the rule book up. And, and the truth is, I would love to say, here's the rules, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't work universally and it doesn't even work across the whole organization. It needs to be at the team level. These are the different norms of behavior for how our team wants to work. And now that so much communication is through email, and this is, of course, predates the, the pandemic, email is just so much more efficient than a phone call, so much more efficient than a, a meeting. You're thinking about something at two in the morning, you zap it off rather than try to schedule a, a meeting, which might not happen for two weeks, by which time you've forgotten about it and which the meeting's going to take a half hour and so forth. But emails are often misconstrued. And in my experience, if you zap off an email to somebody, there's a pretty high chance that the person is going to interpret the email in some negative way, right? There's this negativity bias. Like if you say, hey, you know, we got to do this. And they're like, why are you criticizing me? Or why are you being complaining or whatever? When all you're doing is just communicating a fact, right? Or someone says, can we meet? And you're like, yeah, 10 o'clock. Okay, question mark. And then people are like, why is this person? So I've found if you say exactly the same thing and throw a smiley in there, you know, it, might, it might make a change. But why is there this tendency to preference the people that communicate with us in person, isn't this imposing a huge tax on them and saying, listen, if you really want me to pay attention to you and you really want me to treat you with kindness, then you need to like exert a hundred times more effort and schedule a meeting and drag all my time down the toilet rather than just sending me a short, succinct, brief to the point email. That's an interesting question. I don't know that I've ever, I'll, I'll tell you how I think of it. I, I usually think of it as a continuum, right? Between high fidelity mediums of communication and low fidelity. And the rough correlation that you could draw is that high importance issues ought to be high fidelity conversations and low important issues. I mean, mo most people don't complain about the meetings that were actually really important. They complain about the meetings that could have been an email because they're low importance or even low information, but we're using a high fidelity medium of communication, right? So I, I tend to think of it that way. Why is it? I think especially over the last 14 months, a lot of it has been because it's what we're used to. Like you said, an email is super efficient. That's true. But if you are walking to go get coffee in the office kitchenette and that person who you were about to send an email to is right there, well, then the most efficient thing to do is to mention it when you're right there, right? And so then we all got pulled out of those offices by force and put into this system where what we're used to is that we had more frequent interactions. And so I think that's why we kind of default to it instead of learning the, these rules. And I think that, again, that's where the experience of kicking off a team, or if you haven't done it yet, now's the time, having that working agreement conversation 
where we do that. And then in the process, we talk about the continuum, everything from texting to presumably face-to-face in-person meetings. And then what are the different subjects that call for what? Actually, one of the things that I tell a lot of people, you'd be surprised on this, is that the data supports the idea that check-in conversations, your one-on-one check-in conversations might be better off as audio only, not a scheduled video call because we have a higher level of emotional empathy. And so we can be more attuned to people's, how they're receiving the feedback we're giving them and those sort of things. It also benefits because it could be the one meeting where you actually get to go outside and walk around (laughs) that day while you're on the phone with that person, right? But all, all of that comes from looking at it, I think, as that continuum and then having that conversation with the team. What things go where. If you don't do that, then you end up with, I think, too many things defaulting to being a meeting and too much miscommunication on the email side, right? And maybe too many emojis. Well, you know, a big part of a successful organization is the camaraderie, the sense of shared purpose and mission, the team spirit that feeds intrinsic motivation. And a lot of people have argued that that's been difficult to produce during the pandemic with entirely remote teams. And I'm looking at it through the perspective of education. You didn't talk about universities, but it's very similar. When students come in, there's an onboarding process and then teams are formed and so forth. And I've watched as kind of the students have struggled with this a bit and they don't feel that sense of, of common purpose quite as much. You have some insights into how organizations can instill this sense of purpose more effectively and, and onboard people more effectively. And, and of course, a lot of these insights will apply no matter you know how the workforce is is organized but there are some specific things that you recommend yeah i mean in, in in terms of onboarding and building that connection we used to do that organically we used to let the office environment do that for us you know we talked earlier about serendipitous collisions and all that sort of stuff in terms of onboarding truthfully we have always done that terribly right like onboarding and interviews are the things that end meetings are the things that in person, we weren't doing them all that well to begin with. So it's no wonder we're, we're really struggling here. In the book, we talk about a lot of research that was done pre-pandemic that even in a physical location emphasizes the need to prioritize connection over documentation. When we think about onboarding from a purely HR standpoint, and I'm part of this problem, I taught HR for almost a decade, right? We think about all the legal things we have to get done and all of the paperwork that needs to get filled out and signed and and all of the employee handbooks that we need to get distributed. And then sometimes even give them a quiz to verify they read and all that sort of stuff. And then it's like, oh, yeah, but the the first weekly all hands meeting is next Monday. So, you know, in the meantime, just kind of, you know, see who you can meet. Right. What I see in a remote company, I mean, the companies that do it really well are the ones that are very deliberate about this, deliberate about how we bond the team together, right? Meaning that we, this doesn't mean Zoom happy hours every Wednesday afternoon, right? I think we all are a little hungover from Zoom happy hours, but it does mean paying attention to, is there a place on Slack where we're having non-work conversations that people can check into every once in a while? Is there, my favorite trick that I've ever picked up from distributed companies is if the meeting starts at 10, half the team is, knows that if they join at 9.50, then there'll be people in the Zoom room and there'll be that, you know, which is what we did in the office, right? Or the ability to linger after the thing is formally over instead of just the, the boom, this meeting has been ended by host, right? Those things build connections. On an onboarding sense, my favorite example of this is they didn't actually make the cut in the book and I'm still kind of mad about it. But a buddy of mine that runs about a 200 person distributed company that does two things really well for building bonds. The first is that they actually, they would call themselves a fully remote company, but they use a hub strategy. In other words, they only hire people in certain cities. They picked very deliberately what cities in the US and now internationally they want to pull people from. There is no home office, 
But the fact that five or six members of the team work in Boston and five or six members work in St. Louis, et cetera, makes it easier for those people to feel connected with themselves and makes it easier for senior leaders to, to have touch points with everybody. So onboarding is usually done with the people in that hub strategy. And yeah, you go through all the documentation, you do all the trainings, you do all that sort of stuff, but there's somebody from the team there doing it with you instead of some random person from HR you're never going to meet again. Right. All of those things build that sense of, of connection that keeps people a, a, a lot more engaged because they build friendships, they build relationships, et cetera, that we know from the research that work friends make us more productive, but also make us more likely to stay and make us more connected to. I don't want to get it. We can get into greater purpose stuff here, but just make us feel a smaller sense of individual purpose because we know the who benefits from our work. We have a personal relationship with the other people that we're working on this project with. And as a result, we have what in the, in the org psych literature we call task significance, right? The sense that we know how it contributes to the larger whole because we know those people. Right. I mean, the hub strategy is an interesting one. I have a, a former student who has a startup and her startup is all about having people use their homes as essentially remote facilities for companies, right? Where it's one location. And WeWork, of course, is trying out this approach as well. And I think universities that are thinking about online degree programs are also kind of thinking about this. Rather than having one person from Kansas and one person from Nebraska in the program, you, you just focus on, okay, we'll have Kansas City will be our place and then Chicago will be our place. And, and this kind of gets to the, the other book on networks, where the network book is not really as much about top-down thinking about organizing information flows and much more about, as an individual, how do you optimize your effectiveness. But there's one chapter in there, which is, you know, seek out silos, right? And I love this. I mean, the title of this podcast is Unsiloed. But you talk about how, right, there, there's a balance between- <laughs> Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> being a connector- which is someone who has this very you know rich network of diverse people, but then also being part of of something which is a cluster, right? And and how clusters forge innovation. And so you could, you could be too kind of incestuous right, in terms of your relationships within some cluster, but you could also be too too much of a, a loose free agent. So I think you, there were a couple examples of top-down. You talk about General McChrystal and how they use these liaison officers as kind of key people. Could you maybe talk about that story? And is there a way that, is that simply about job roles or can you channel, use communication tools and other sorts of things to promote that type of communication network? Yeah. So this is an idea that I've actually been fascinated with from the beginning. It sort of touches in almost every book, even in the midst of creativity around innovation, this idea that the best teams don't stay together for long because there's this balance between, you know, the, the band of brothers, the league of sisters tried and true what some network scientists might call the bonding capital relationships in our lives, the people we go to for social support and what have you. And those people feel good. They feel so good that often we don't want to leave. And then that's how we end up in silos, right? But the opposite is also true. We can have so much bridging capital, so many connections to lots of other people that are actually superficial. And when life hits really hard, the bridging capital helps us get it back on our feet. But like the bonding capital is what keeps the wind from getting knocked out of us, right? It, it's what keeps us having that sense of social support. And we see the same thing in information flows, which is what Stanley McChrystal was, was focused on. And in organizations, truthfully, the best teams are ones that tend to rotate every 18, 36 months at the most. And in fact, I think that the big re 
in terms of, I, I run around in that whole thinker's 50 world and I, I always feel like a midget compared to disruptive innovation and all of those sort of things. But the best, the best idea I think I've ever contributed to that conversation is that we need to rethink the building block of organizations. It's not the job and a team is not a group of people who respond to this manager. The building block of an organization ought to be the project. What are we working on? Let's pull together the best team for that project. And when that project is over, disperse them and find a different team for them, right? So what does this have to do with Stanley McChrystal? When Stanley McChrystal took over the war against Al-Qaeda in Iraq, he noticed the breakdown of information flow that was exactly what would be predicted by an imbalance between these clusters and this bridging capital. And he decided he didn't need to do something about it. Now, the, the military, the armed services across all I was going to say five branches. Well, there were five at the time. Now there's, you know, six. Thanks, Space Force. Um, the military at the time had these liaison roles already. But what happened was they became kind of a sit and wait role, right? So you have four months left on your tour, and but we don't need you on this sort of thing. So go over and be the liaison to somebody else. Or you've got a year left before you're retired. Congratulations, you're the liaison. All McChrystal did was say, no, 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 this role, this person who is building a bridge between two different branches of the service is so important that we're putting our best and brightest people on this, right? So it was the most talented people now that were assigned to those liaison roles, which is a total reframe for everybody that was under his leadership. But over time, it made people see that, okay, he's, he's serious. This is important. And over time, the wins in terms of speed of communication would pick up. And so people would would kind of get it, right? His The goal in this, and I think this is the goal for everybody, you may not have to actually rotate teams every 12 months or something like that. But the goal was that if there was one person on every team who could point to someone else on another team and say, yeah, I know that guy or I know that girl, and they're really good, they're a solid employee, they're a good worker, they're a good soldier, then over time, what would happen is everybody would feel collegial with everybody else. Because if you knew one and then you notice that they're really collegial with all the rest of the team, then you make the assumption, yeah, they must be good people. I can trust those people, right? So that may be rotating the whole org chart. In under new management, I literally called it writing the org chart in pencil. It may be something as simple as letting people spend a portion of their work week helping a different project team. IDEO experimented around with this for a bit, the concept of help time, that part of what was culturally acceptable for high performance employees was you spend a percentage of your time jumping in on somebody else's focus group or brainstorming session or something like that. I think a lot more organizations would benefit from thinking about what are the ways we can draw in a couple other people who don't normally work with us on this. Not only do we benefit from their insights, but we benefit from getting to know them as well. Now, do you think that's easier or harder to do in the remote environment? On the one hand, it's easier to connect with people that are not co-located with you because we've got all these, you know, digital tools. But on the other hand, just dropping into somebody's office, dropping into somebody's meeting room, this generally doesn't happen in remote. I mean, you have to kind of schedule a meeting. You have to kind of say, hey, let's let's have this conversation over Zoom at a particular time. And, and so it really requires a little bit more intentionality, right? Yeah, I mean... So it's sort of short term, long term, right? In the short term, yeah, it's been a whole lot harder over the last 14 months because there's a lot we've been worried on. And this is one of those minuscule ones. In the long term, my hope, in, in the long term, it's unquestionably easier. And the reason for that is that organizations who are not used to the idea that you could put a project team together from people who are in different offices across the country or across the globe, there are a lot of organizations that never would have thought of that. And now you can, right? I mean, we saw this, I think it was last week, Deloitte announced that they're going to be remote first, which makes perfect sense because if most of your clients aren't even in the city where your office is, 
then why do I need to pull the team of one partner and four junior consultants from Dallas to go service that client in Midland, Odessa, when I could actually put together a perfect team from these four people across the country and they're going to fly in anyway, right? So I think we're going to see more of that in the long term. I think there's a lot of dust that sort of needs to settle and people figuring out. So we are going to see that. And yes, it'll have to be more structured and more deliberate because you can't, if you're in the Chicago office and they're in the Dallas office, you're not going to serendipitously meet them at the coffee shop, right? But I think if we have a really good sense of who, what our individual talent strengths, knowledge, skills, abilities, that whole thing are, and we think about it in terms of putting together the right team per project, we're going to see a lot more geographically dispersed collaboration. And I think that's an overall good thing. Ironically, though, I'm worried about the, the collaboration we've been talking about for this while, which is interdepartmental collaboration. We probably, I mean, that's a that's a huge source of inertia. And some, some of it uh, I might have some ideas on, but there are some silos that I think may always be there, right? Marketing is always going to hate legal. Doesn't doesn't matter what environment we have them in, right? One's always going to try and push the boundaries and the other's always going to try and stay safe. So, yeah. Well, so I guess the concern is that now with virtual work, the glue never really has a chance to kind of solidify. I know people that have started jobs and and ended jobs all within the pandemic and they never actually met anybody <laughs> from their their jobs because they never had time for these on-sites and i, I want to I hear about the on-sites but so what are some of the strategies as we go back to a world where physical interaction will be possible you mentioned companies like Basecamp that have been operating virtual for a long time and you talk about these like you know ficas are virtual ficas a, a real thing can they work or will we have to lean on these kind of periodic on-sites to boost that that sense of, of camaraderie? I think it's both end. I, I think in the last 14 months, Fika, which is just this kind of non-work coffee chat conversation that most companies that do this will do it, say, once a week, and you randomize in to, or, or sorry, you opt in to get randomized to have this 30-minute conversation with people. That So you get to know people from across the company, right? So it would have solved that issue that you were talking about. I work, I started work and left work from a company where I never actually met anyone. I don't think though, I think those are more like ways that we keep camaraderie high in between our in-person interactions, right? So there, there are certainly are organizations that can function okay with not having any in-person interaction and have functioned okay over the last 14 months, but almost every long-term successful geographically dispersed company has made time for that in-person interaction. And usually it's not you know, this is the interesting thing. There is usually a uh, a summit or a conference or something that is very, we would think of as a normal event. But in a lot of cases, like in the case of automatic, for example, most of the budget, most of the budget that a manager was given was really just, hey, I rented this Airbnb in Malibu and we're all going to work together. We have no agenda. It's just this week, we're going to be working from the same physical space, right? Those little things help us build uh, a sense of each other, how they are work preferences, our schedules, all of that sort of stuff that I, I really don't think there's a replacement for. I think things like FICA, things like buffer time before and after meetings and, and those sort of things are ways that you can help like sort of pop camaraderie up a bit in between those in-person meetings. But meetups definitely matter. I've, I've yet to see an example of really strong camaraderie in an organization where you never actually met anyone in person. So I think before the pandemic, most companies were 100% in person. And then during the pandemic, most companies moved to 100% online. And you have this great example of the fitness company that did this. Yeah, they changed their name on me, by the way, in between. <laughs> 
right? But when the whole pandemic thing is completely over and it, it should be fairly soon, then we have kind of a we have a palette that we can choose from, right? And and I think about this in, in education where we had this big debate between the in-person education versus online education. And we didn't really think about, well, hold on a second, right? We have a palette here, right? We can figure out what the comparative advantage is for these different kind of ways of interacting. And then we can sort of take that entire job, so to speak, take the entire kind of production process and break it down and say, well, these things are best in person. These things are best online. And maybe in education, for instance, instead of having six hours a week of, of, of lecture time, which is not really very interactive, we say, let's, let's have a bunch of stuff online. And then when we are together, we, we make it matter. You know, we really, right. really, you know, we're not sitting in lectures. We're actually sitting around eating and drinking and working on projects and doing post-it notes and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So when we, when we, now that we have available to us, this palette of, you know, where we can pick and choose and cherry pick, what do you think work's going to look like? Do you think that how many, what percentage of companies are going to just stick with 100% online? What percentage are going to go back to pretend like this online thing never happened? And who's going to really be thinking carefully about this kind of comparative advantage of different work formats? Yeah. Well, I, I think I'm not all that optimistic about the percentage of companies that are fully distributed increasing all that much, right? I mean, if we did a 50% increase, that means we go from like 4% to 6% of companies, right? So I'm not, I mean, that number won't be above 10. It'll probably, it'll be somewhere between five and 10 in terms of that. But, and I wrote about this once in, I think 2017 or 2018, a lot of organizations, you could find this hidden bias against workers that wanted flex time. That's what we called it before the pandemic. Now we call it hybrid, right? But we called it flex time. And we found there were all sorts of biases against the people who requested it. There was a gender bias against it. So we, we assumed men were requesting it so they could be more effective in client visits and women were requesting it because they needed to do home caretaking and therefore were less committed. I mean, stuff that's maddening for, I guess I was about to say 2021, but this was 2017. Stuff that was hopefully the past 14 months have smashed some of that bias, right? And made us realize that what we need is to be offering that from the get-go. There's one company in Leading From Anywhere that we talk about. It's not really a company. It's a, the Belgian Ministry of Social Security. I was amazed by that example. I was just struck by how kind of precocious they were. Well, I think that the key with that story and the reason I really wanted to include it is that Frank Van Massenhove did not set out to create a remote-first organization, which is what you see all these people advertising. He set out to build a great workplace and a workplace where people were excited to show up and contribute and people were intrinsically motivated, which, you know, from the research suggests that we need to give them more autonomy. And as a result, people spend 80% of their time working from somewhere other than the office. I don't know that it'll be, it'll be 80%, but I think that's the more interesting percentage, right? Is what percentage of an average worker's time is spent at the office versus not at the office. And the, the best data, the, or at least the data that I'm in the peg that I'm going to hang my hat on is there was some interesting Gallup data before the pandemic that we talked about in the book that showed the most engaged employees were the ones who spent two to three days a week out of the office. And so if I had to pick where do we end up, we end up somewhere in there, right? Somewhere between 40 and 60% of time at the office and 40 and 60% of time not. Now, the, the key there is that I think if we just say that, hey, you can spend 50% of your time wherever you want, I think what will happen absent structure is that managers will spend more time at the office. Senior leaders will go back to being at the office all of the time. And suddenly, two years later, the message will be, if you want to get promoted, 
you don't actually, you know, spend that 50% of time away from the office, right? It's sort of like the big joke. Everybody used to talk about Google's 20% time. And then if you ever interview anybody at Google, they'd say, well, it's 120% time. Yeah, you can work on whatever you want, but you still have to do your actual work, right? Remote might actually be the same way. Yeah, you can work from home. It's going to cut. Yeah, it's going to When cost. you're working nights and weekends, right? Yeah. So it, I think it takes a deliberate effort, not only for senior leadership to be very showy about it, but it takes a, a individual team leaders and project managers saying, hey, what is the day? Like, hey, let's pick the day that we want to be in the office or the two days that we want to be in the office. And then you can be anywhere else, right? Absent that kind of structure, I think we're just going to go back to, a lot of us are going to go back to those defaults. And while it won't happen right away, we'll eventually arrive at this place where we have a bias against people who are at the office less because we think they're less committed even though they're more productive, right? So I think it takes a lot of that structure and I'm banking on that structure be probably two to three days out of the office. And for some organizations, it might flip and it might take the form of core hours where like we want everybody at the office from 10 to two on Monday through Friday, but we don't care when you come in and we don't care when you leave. We just know this is when meetings get scheduled. So please be in the office those hours, right? It's gonna look very, very different for different companies, but I don't think the solution is just, we're hybrid now, work wherever you want, because that, is going to cause a lot of subtle biases to creep back in. Yeah. I mean, if it's not centrally coordinated, it's going to fall apart because if you belong to a bunch of different groups and one group has their meeting on Monday at 10 a.m. and the other one has Tuesday at 4 p.m. and the other one's Wednesday at 11 a.m., well, then you're going to wind up having to go in every day, right? Because if you're the one person who's on the speakerphone during the meeting, then you're basically irrelevant. I mean, we all know that when you have a bunch of people in a room and a bunch of people on the speakerphone, the speakerphone people are essentially ignored. So, you know, it is, it's definitely a coordination problem and it has to be solved with by leadership. So we didn't get to talk about uh, purpose, but clearly that's uh, super important. And I think you, you talk about the role of leadership in creating purpose and you use this metaphor of the fight, right? And you kind of apologize for it at the same time as you, you use it, right? Because it's, it's a little martial, I guess, in its language. But after apologizing, you stick with it and you say that, People need this. People need a sense of common purpose. How can that be best instilled? And why isn't a simple mission statement going to do the job, right? Every company has a mission statement. And you, you point out like the mission statement of enhancing shareholder value is not <laughs> one that's going to really get people out of bed in the morning. So what, what do you have to do? It's, apology might be a good word. I, I recognize it's a word that has a lot of baggage, right? And truthfully, I think that comes from a lot of a lot of leaders that use fight to mean against competitors. And that's not what we're talking about here. People want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. The, the line I use in, in the audiobook and pick a fight is that people don't want to join a company. They want to join a crusade. They want to join a just cause. They want to know they're working towards something and, and making a contribution towards something. And I arrived at fight truthfully out of my own biases. I, for my entire life, have practiced some form of martial arts, right? So this idea of fighting, it's never, obviously, violence is different from fighting in my mind, if that makes sense, right? Because there's an art to it as well. What I learned in working with a lot of different teams and organizations is that I could cut through the clutter of the mission statement and the purpose and who felt what by asking a really simple question, which is when I say, hey, when we think about our team and all the work that we're doing, what are we fighting for? Like, what are, what's the big thing that we're working towards? And what I found is that most teams had a terrible answer, right? Or didn't know, et cetera. And that's a problem. But the teams that, that did could 
understand that what I meant in that question wasn't here's how we're crushing competitors or how we're have all sorts of internal political turmoil. They actually, they always fell into one of three camps and I outline them in, in greater detail in Pick a Fight, but we talk about it in the, in Leading from Anywhere as well. They, they fall into three camps of what I call the revolutionary fight, the underdog fight, or the ally fight. And the, the revolutionary fight is about change. We're working towards changing something in the industry. There is an injustice somewhere in our industry or in society. And by operating as an organization, we're working to change that, right? So this is this is a lot of, of different advocacy groups, obviously, but this is also organizations that are trying to change things about their industry. We talk about Elevest, the robo-advisor that realized that all of the other robo-advisors were assuming that their users were male, and that's really unfair, and there's some dangerous assumptions that that happens. So they created the first robo-advisor for women, right? Or one of my buddies has a company called Pila in Vancouver that makes biodegradable cell phone cases, right? You buy a cell phone case that's made out of petroleum. You get a new phone a year later, the cell phone case sits in a landfill for 10,000 years. This you compost and it biodegrades inside of 10, right? Fascinating. You ask them what they're fighting for. I did this real life with his team. You ask them, what are you fighting for? And they say, we're fighting for a waste-free future. It's just a great way to clearly crystallize what we're working for. The underdog fight is more about sort of how we're trying to prove people wrong. The critics that we've been unjustly criticized. That's a terrible way to phrase that, but we'll run with it. The being on the, the receiving end of unjustified criticism really does have a motivational factor. And I resonate with this because I'm from Philadelphia, a land where of, of Rocky, right? Our greatest sports hero is a fictional character who loses a boxing match, but we get motivated by that underdog story. And there really is, uh, Samir Nur Muhammad at the University of Pennsylvania has some amazing research that that really is a true underlying human motivation, right? It doesn't just mean we're the small company taking on the bigger companies. It means that we've been unjustly criticized and here's how we're going to prove them wrong. And the ally fight, this is really just a way of thinking about Adam Grant, a lot of his work around pro-social motivation, the idea that we want to know who specifically is helped by the work that we do. And this is one that I think a lot of organizations can rely on that don't necessarily think they can. One of my favorite examples of purpose probably of all time is KPMG, the accounting firm, outlining this sense of purpose by doing two things. The first thing they did was this, what they called the We Shape History campaign, where they started telling the stories of the way KPMG as a firm was involved in world events like the Lend-Lease Act in World War II or the certification of the election of Nelson Mandela. Like that was their firm doing that, which is a cool story. But then they flipped it on its head and they said, how do you shape history? They launched what they called the 10,000 Stories Challenge and encouraged people to reframe the work that the project they were actually working on as similarly history making. They wanted 10,000 stories. They got 42,000 stories, right? Which is pretty much one for every partner, although I think several or one for every associate. But I think several associates submitted multiple answers. What they found there, I think, is really interesting. It's not just about this reframe is what we're fighting. But it's that the team leader and the level to which he or she talked about purpose had a massive effect on whether or not it really resonated with people, right? And so I think this is the other thing beyond just mission statements and why they don't work because they're written by committee and they have way too many people who, I mean, you know this, you're an academic. It's the same deal, right? Try and get anything done in an academic council meeting. It's about the same as these retreats that write the mission statements. But when you ask, what are we fighting for? You cut through all of that. And you ask them to identify a cause or a person who is helped by the work that we do. And then the other thing that I think the KPMG story indicates is that in a large organization where you don't see the CEO or any of the senior leaders of an organization every day, the team leader matters so much more for whether or not people actually feel that sense of purpose. It's not one big grandiose video that'll get everybody motivated. It's training individual managers to talk about it far more often than they think they have to so that it's caught by everyone in the organization.
Yeah, no, I think that's super important. But I think in what we've learned from the military is that people are just as much fighting for their platoon mates as they are for the kind of overall purpose. And so forging those bonds, forging those friendships within the team is also important. And that's something that's that's deeply challenging, I think, in the remote context. And so it's great that you, you've written about that as well. And I think those two things have a synergy, right? I mean, there's there's some interesting research around superordinate goals. The idea of working for that bigger thing creates those bonds, but then the bonds reinforce that thing. And then, and he's not a researcher, but he's a brilliant writer. Sebastian Junger in his book, Tribe, is the one that really hit that home for me. The idea that he sat you know, in a foxhole with people in war for months. And the thing he realized was exactly what you said. Most of them were fighting to protect the person to the right or the left of them. In addition to thinking about the broader purpose, right? But there was that element too. And I don't think... I don't think we should ignore that inside of organizations either. I don't know, you know, this giant debate that Patty McCord started about, are we a family or are we a sports team, et cetera? I don't, I don't have a good answer for that, but I don't think thinking of talent as a sports franchise where we rotate players, I don't know a lot of solid performing sports franchises that don't have that sense of bond and collegiality. So, you know, I'm somewhere in the middle, I think. Yeah, they're really good at creating it relatively quickly, right? Through these shared experiences, training and so forth. And uh, I think you also talk about that. Dave, this has been great. I think we could probably talk all day. I teach this course on the future of work and I will assign this video <laughs> as, uh, as homework for, for them as I have uh, recommended this, this book to them. Leading from Anywhere, Central Guide to Managing Remote Teams. And of course, right, we have lots of other books that we will mention. And of course, you do have a- Yeah, I'm impressed. Thank you. I'm, I'm impressed. You also have a website and you have a bunch of tools that people can access on, on the website, right? DavidBurkus.com, is that right? DavidBurkus.com. I'm so lucky in that my name is uh, pretty unique. And so all the usernames and domains were still open by the time I came around in the world, which is great. Okay, so check out those tools, those worksheets and so forth. Great stuff. Thanks again for joining me, David. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.